What is the biggest decision you've ever made in your life? Perhaps it's where to apply for work after finishing school, or deciding to enter into a committed relationship, or maybe even choosing to leave one that wasn't working. However you answer that question, chances are that the person it would affect most in the world is you. Now that can be an intimidating thought, but consider for a moment the pressure you might feel if the biggest decisions you made not only held your own life in the balance, but thousands of lives who are trusting you to be their guide. This has been the reality of the general throughout military history. For these commanders, the decision to move a particular unit north could have a profound impact on the war as a whole, but one thing was always certain, no commander could ever guarantee that all the men he ordered into battle would come back alive. Families would lose sons, brothers, and fathers because of their instructions. This is the general's war, the burden of command, and it is something that few of us will ever truly appreciate. In today's episode, we're going to take a glimpse into the realm of a general on the eve of arguably the single most important military operation in history, D-Day. You will step into the command center of this battle. We will break down the factors you will have to consider on June 4th, 1944, less than 48 hours before your men storm the beaches of Normandy. This is your last chance to alter any of your plans for your unit, to give your troops the best chance of achieving their objective at Normandy and helping the Allies establish their beachhead. For the next 20 minutes, the weight of responsibility for not just your own men, but possibly the success of the entire Allied offensive rests squarely on your shoulders. This is a day in the life of a general. Welcome to Wars of the World. As the old saying goes, we all have to answer to someone. This is still true for generals in wartime. Just like in the lower ranks, there exists a rank structure within an army's core of generals, with one general standing head and shoulders above the others. He has the final say on everything. He is the supreme commander of the Allied forces, and his name is General Dwight D. Eisenhower. Known affectionately by the troops, as Ike. Ike faced some controversy when he was first appointed to such an important and prestigious role. During the First World War, he never left the United States, meaning he was commanding literally hundreds of thousands of men without ever having gone into combat himself. However, by now, he has proven any and all doubters wrong, having commanded successful campaigns in Africa and Sicily, and now he stands ready to oversee the invasion of Fortress Europe, an operation he has dubbed Overlord. One of the keys to Ike's success in his position is his ability to navigate both the military and political landscapes he finds himself embroiled in, 
leading many to proclaim he was the only general on the Allied side who could possibly organise this enormous campaign. Below Ike, there are some powerful personalities, all of whom are vying for influence over him and as a general, you too have to battle with them in the various meetings you attend. One of the most dominant is Britain's Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery. Like Eisenhower, Montgomery has an affectionate nickname given to him by his men, in this case, Monty. But unlike Ike, he already had his name burned into the military history books with his campaign against German Field Marshal Erwin Rommel in North Africa. Meticulous in his calculations, to the point of being accused of being overly cautious, but possessing a keen intellect in reading a tactical situation, Monty has enjoyed significant influence over the planning of Overlord. One general who has been distrusting of how much influence Monty had with Ike before now, or at the very least envious of it, is General George S. Patton. Patton had been a pioneer of America's tank corps during the First World War, training men in their operation before leading them into battle, at times almost without any consideration for his own safety. Now, few would argue Patton wasn't a brave soldier, but compared with Monty's meticulousness, Patton is brash and opportunistic. He is prone to emotional outbursts, typified by incidents in the year before, where he slapped two soldiers suffering from battle fatigue, accusing them of being cowards. Together, Monty and Patton form two extremes in the way they command their men. This leaves Eisenhower in the middle, striking a balance between the two. You see all of this, and the question remains, as a general, where will you be placed on the scales? As one of the senior divisional commanders, you've been invited to attend a meeting being held at Southwick House, Portsmouth. As you ride in the back of your staff car, your fingers tap against your briefcase, for the invasion is scheduled to start in less than 24 hours on the morning of June 5th. That's when the moon will be at its brightest. This will allow the gliders that will be carrying your men and equipment to fly into their landing zones and be able to spot obstacles in their path while still enjoying a degree of concealment in the night sky. On the beaches, it will also allow the landing craft to spot fixed German defenses that will be exposed during the low tide at Normandy. However, your years of military experience have taught you full well that for all the planning you have been a part of, one factor remains out of anyone barring God's own control, the weather. It seems such a trivial thing at first, but the reality is that even now in the 20th century, with all the motorization of modern warfare, the weather still has the potential for scuppering the successful outcome of any military campaign. The truth is, few realize just how close D-Day is coming to being cancelled because of the worsening weather in the English Channel. That is why you found yourself at Southwick House at 415 hours on June 4th attending this meeting. A decision is going to have to be made based upon the weather forecast. The decision is Ike's, but he will be making this decision based on the predictions of a lanky RAF officer by the name of Group Captain James Stagg. Stagg is Operation Overlord's Chief Meteorological Officer, 
And it is his role to interpret the information that was coming in from weather stations, observation posts, and even combat aircraft flying weather patrols across the British Isles, the North Sea, and the North Atlantic. It is not good news. Stagg, being a non-combat officer and holding a rank equivalent to that of a colonel in the army, has the unenviable task of telling a room full of some of the most important leaders of the Allied war effort that in his opinion, the invasion should be delayed by 24 hours to allow the weather to improve. Some of your fellow generals scoff and accuse Stagg of being overly cautious, insisting that the invasion go ahead as planned. Curiously, the typically cautious Monty is especially vocal and wants to go as planned on the 5th. You only have a three day window for the moon to be in the right phase and delays could see the forced postponement of the operation for weeks. Worse still, for Stagg's case, American meteorologists using a different prediction system believes that a high pressure front is going to force the bad weather away from the landing zones, leaving them with clear skies on June 5th. But Stagg remains adamant in his recommendation to hold off for 24 hours. The decision rests with Ike, and he ultimately and reluctantly agrees. The invasion has been postponed until June 6th. You now must return to your men and give them the news. The hammer will fall on June 6th. One thing military leaders the world over learned with Germany's Blitzkrieg in 1940, be they in the fight or not, was that with tanks and aircraft, the tactical situation was now more fluid than ever before. Whereas the battle lines could take days to change as much as a few miles in the First World War, now the same could be achieved within a few hours. With this in mind, and with 24 additional hours for the Germans to reposition their forces, you return to your men, and after informing them of the delay, you begin poring over the latest intelligence of your men's landing zones. Even with your privileged position, there are still a great many things you don't know about the Allied intelligence gathering operations. You do know the more obvious aspects though, such as Allied agents working behind the lines with the French resistance, although you don't know too many details. You know that observation posts in Dover, where the English Channel is narrowest, spy on German positions on the opposite side looking back. Occasionally, submarines will dare to poke their periscopes above the waters and photograph German defensive positions along the Atlantic Wall, but it is most certainly from the skies that the bulk of your knowledge about enemy forces originates. Allied pilots have been scouring northern France for days, photographing German positions and formations. These men are incredibly brave, as many of their aircraft are stripped of armaments to allow them to carry more fuel for longer range and make them lighter once that fuel has been exhausted, thus allowing them to outrun German interception. Sometimes this works, sometimes it doesn't. Back in your office, your intelligence analysts have placed a large map of the landing zone and annotated it with the latest information. Additionally, you find a series of photographs taken by aircraft stitched together in a large mosaic, depicting vast areas of the Normandy countryside. You now have your god's eye view of your men's landing zone. 
as well as a wider view of the strategic picture and how your men fit into Overlord. Drawing upon your experience and knowledge, you realize there are good and bad elements about the selection of Normandy for this invasion. On the one hand, you know from the reports that you have read that German forces in the region have been bled by the pressures of fighting on the Eastern Front against the Soviet Union and against the Western allies in Italy, where they are still giving stiff resistance despite their defeat at Monte Cassino. With Eisenhower's invasion force still in England or sitting in the English Channel, the Germans are relying heavily on their Atlantic Wall to keep hold of France. Stretching from the south of France to the northernmost regions of Scandinavia, Hitler had ordered the construction of an extensive series of fortifications aimed at keeping the Allies stuck in Britain. Rommel himself had overseen much of the preparations in France, and under his direction, they could prove highly effective. But fortunately for you, the Allies have been executing a cunning plan to deceive Hitler. Hitler believes that the invasion will come at Calais, not Normandy, and the Allies have been doing everything to convince him of this, from fake tanks and aircraft at Dover photographed by Germany's own reconnaissance planes to false radio communications they know the Germans will intercept. The Allies have woven an intricate ploy so successful that even many of the Allied troops think that Normandy is a simple diversion. With limited resources, Hitler has diverted much of his own tanks and aircraft north of the actual landing zone. In the air, the Luftwaffe will be outnumbered almost 10 to 1 when the invasion begins. Yet, despite all of this, you are not ignorant of the fact that time and time again, the German army, the Wehrmacht, has proven themselves formidable foes. Much of Rommel's success in Africa was based on him achieving a great deal with very little, and the defenses they have, particularly on the beaches, are well placed. For your own men coming in by air, there is always the risk of encirclement at the landing zone by an enemy force. There is a great deal to be optimistic about, but success is by no means guaranteed. You recall the words of the great 19th century Prussian general, Helmuth von Moltke the Elder, who famously said, no plan of operations extends with certainty beyond the first encounter with the enemy's main strength. Of course, all of this is academic if you can't get your men there in the first place, and in your case, that means gliders. Thus, your next task is to check on the preparations for the flight into Normandy when it finally comes, and to check your men's equipment. Of the gliders available, the most important are the Horsa, the Hammerclaw, and the CG-4, each of which has their strengths and weaknesses. The British Airspeed Horsa was capable of transporting up to 30 fully equipped troops or various light vehicles and field guns, yet despite its size and the lack of a power plant, it was a surprisingly agile aircraft in flight. Given that it was highly unlikely that any significant number would survive their first flight into battle, the Horsa was manufactured using wood, which helped relieve the burden on the supply chain for strategic metals. The Hammerclaw was another large glider, designed primarily to carry light tanks, 17-pounder field guns or large numbers of supplies in a single flight. While an American design, 
It was fielded solely by the British and was designed around specifications outlined by Winston Churchill in 1941. However, it was the Waco CG4 that was the most numerically significant glider of the war. The CG4, known as the Hadrian in British service, was smaller than the Horser, only being able to carry either 13 combat-ready troops with equipment, a single jeep, or a single 75mm howitzer. But its smaller size gave it the advantage of being able to land in tighter areas than either the Horser or the Hammerclaw, thus greatly expanding the number of potential landing sites. These are the steeds that will carry your men and equipment to war. When it is time for the men to go, the gliders will be towed into the air by cargo planes like the C-47, or even bombers like the Short Sterling. After being towed to their release points, the gliders then break free and cruise silently over the German positions to their landing zones. It is called a landing, but it's often more akin to a controlled crash. In fact, almost 1,000 CG4s have already been written off just training for D-Day, almost 50% of the total delivered to the United Kingdom. The plans are good for getting the men into Normandy. Now you just need to make sure your men have all their equipment to wage war. Individual equipment loadouts will of course vary between each man depending on their role, but for the majority, it will look similar. Alongside his helmet, fatigues, and his boots, he will need his rifle, grenades, wire cutters, flashlight, knife, entrenching shovel, compass, light rations, and extra ammunition. Some of the more unusual items for D-Day include a luminous disc or button. These are constructed with radium, and after a soldier shines a flashlight on it for a short while, it glows for several hours, allowing friendly troops to know you are nearby in the darkness. Another vital piece used for identifying troops will be the clicker, a rather innocuous looking child's toy that makes a metal clicking sound. If a trooper hears someone coming, he can give out a little click, and if two clicks are heard in response, he knows the figure in the dark is friendly. So, you've double-checked all that you can. What more can you do? You look out at the base, the English rain lashing down upon it, and you think that maybe Stag was right after all, and you start to wonder what is going through your men's minds. They have another 24 hours of contemplating their fate before they hit Normandy. They need reassurance. They need motivation. This is where you have to step up as a leader to inspire them and give them hope. It is time to address them, and fortunately for you, you have several great speeches from history to fall back on, running through your mind as you walk out to the hangar where the men are assembled and waiting. Patrick Henry's powerful declaration of give me liberty or give me death. Lincoln's famous rallying cry that the nation is worth fighting for to secure such an inestimable duel or Wellington's grim and simple truth, that victory is the ability to fight five minutes longer than any other army in the world. As you ascend the podium, you consider what it is you're about to say. In actuality, it doesn't matter if you believe it yourself or not, but what does matter is that they think you believe it. With only the briefest of windows available to you, you must convince these men 
that not only is what they are doing right and worthwhile, but that you are supremely confident in their victory. If they sense you have any doubts, then it will filter down to them. Then they will start contemplating whether they will live through what is about to happen. And in battle, he who hesitates is lost. The general's motivational speech might not be viewed as important, but throughout history, it has been a vital part of many a successful military campaign. It cannot be overstated that in days past, empires have been toppled and kingdoms saved on the morale of their fighters. Worlds shaped by the strong words of one brave man. It is your final duty on the eve of a battle that will forever change the course of history. You have done all you can, and now D-Day begins. This video has been only a peep into the world of a general. In reality, the daily life of a general in World War II was seldom routine and far more nuanced. The general's personality and leadership styles filtered down to the men immediately below him, who in turn passed it on down the ranks. Some generals imprinted their personalities on every aspect of the units under their command, while others preferred to allow subordinate officers to run their own show as long as they did what they were instructed to do. Few of us will ever know the inner workings of such a military leader and their responsibilities, and therefore we may never know what such a role would do to us. Could we handle the enormous planning involved in an operation like D-Day? Could we maintain a mental distance from the suffering on the front lines in order to keep doing our job? The only certainty that every general ever has known is that in every battle there are always, in the end, just two generals. One will win, one will lose. And in their battle, the shape of the world will forever be reforged. This is Wars of the World. Thank you for watching. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. And I'll see you next time.